Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. Today, I have a very special guest for you. As you're well aware, um, on the podcast, we feature conversations with seasoned scholars every so often. And it is my delight today to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vasudha Narayanan, who is Distinguished Professor at the Department of Religion at the University of Florida. She's also director for the Center for the Study of Religions, which we'll talk about on the podcast, um, and probably more hats that I couldn't count or remember. Avasu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And it's Center for the Study of Hindu Traditions, not religion. Center for the Study of Hindu Traditions, of course it is. I'm probably nervous because Vasu's on the podcast. Um, I'm I'm a megalomaniac, but I wouldn't say Center for the Study of Religion. I mean, I could, but uh, let's just say Hinduism and confine it to about 3,000, 4,000 years. Yes, of course. So since we're starting off on this thread, um, uh, tell us about the Center. What's unique Mm -hmm. about the Center? How did it start up? What does it do? Oh, uh, the Center for the Study of Hindu Traditions, and the acronym is CHITRA, Center C, um, HI for Hindu and TRA for Traditions. Um, Because when we were looking for acronym, we didn't want to include study in it uh, because that would have led to a scatological term. Uh, So we thought uh, we would come up with the acronym before someone else did. Uh, Like any other center, this too has a history, and it's both generic as well as specific to our university. Uh, Historically, of course, in uh, in this country, in America, Asian study has always meant or generally means East Asia. There are many happy exceptions to this in terms of universities in this country. But there are some which are a little bit more narrowly focused. And so South Asia was not included in the larger blanket of umbrella, I should say, 
of uh, Asian Asia Asian studies, and eventually, given the kinds of talks we would host here, the kinds of people who came, it seemed natural to start something on global Hindu traditions. It also coincided with my having gotten interested in study of Hinduism, or I should say more specifically Vaishnava and Shaiva traditions and Bauda in, uh, <clears throat> in Southeast Asia. And that's a different story. But my eyes had been open to the riches of the Hindu traditions in many parts of the world. And so we thought it would be a very good idea to have a center which focused on the Hindu traditions globally, but also in an interdisciplinary way. So most of our talks, uh, lectures um, and seminars are interdisciplinary and held in, um, in collaboration with other units at the University of Florida, like the Han Museum of Art. Recently, we had John Guy from the Met talk there, and he spoke, gave a wonderful talk on, uh, on uh, Gujarat um, and how it was a center for so many different trading activities and mercantile activities. And that is a very interesting issue in itself. So we have tended to collaborate with many different units around the University of Florida um, to literature and so on to come up with, I, with different topics on Hinduism. So another theme underlying this is that this is the academic study of Hinduism. Very often one thinks of Hinduism in a polarized way in this country and in India too. Um, and that Hindu studies can be either quote unquote secular or quote unquote um, right wing. And there's not too much of nuancing. So most of the scholars, of course, in America are, are very nuanced and they try to bridge these extremes in their lectures, in their, um, in their research and so on. So I'd like to present the many shades of the Hindu traditions in this center. And we've had seminars which deal with not just Hinduism, but the Hindu interactions with Islam, with indigenous religions, with other traditions, um, not just in India, but in places like Nigeria, Trinidad. Um, and we've had students, very wonderful students, uh, who are speaking about the Hindu traditions in the Caribbean. So Hinduism is so rich, multi-layered, pluralistic, and to kind of bring it down to one color or one stream, um, it did seem a little limiting in its scope. So Chitra tries to kind of go in many directions, trying to offer a variety of perspectives. Yeah, it sounds rich and fascinating and important. And there, sound, there seems to be a bit of a parallel in terms of the censor and the work on the podcast insofar as um, I initially started this podcast as a favor. 
um, in 2019, and then it became a hobby, and now it's a bit of a lifestyle. You are actually my 75th and final podcast of this year. So you will be the caboose of the train for this year. Um, But what it was initially, when I inherited it, it was called New Books. I will not say anything more after that last sentence of yours. Um, initially it was called New Books in Hindu Studies and earlier in this year 2021 we um, I decided to, to rebrand it as New Books Indian Religions why? so there's, there's more texture in terms of um, both what we think of as, as Hinduism and also what interacts with Hinduism for example Islam in India Christianity in, in, in India and so, so that sort of um, that texture is important to convey really what's happening on the ground. You mentioned a couple fascinating things in passing. Of course, I was saving the best for the last for 2021. That's why you're, you're featured in this podcast. <laughs> but a couple of things in passing. Um, one is, you know, the story of how you got interested in Hindu studies. Could you share a bit about that? Oh, uh, sure. I'll try to make it brief. It's been a long story. I didn't know there was a even the field of an academic field of Hindu studies. Neither did I. even (laughs) speak about that. Uh, You know, people in my family had thought, maybe I'd like to be a doctor because no one had ever been a doctor in my family, at least a lawyer, because everyone has had a law degree. So many people had. And, you know, if worse came to worse, my mother thought, you know, my father thought I could get married off or something. Um, but my mother had always wanted me to, to, to study as much as I could, when I could, when I had the opportunity. And she really didn't care what I wanted to study. She wanted me to study. And I didn't know uh, that this field existed. So I knew that I was buying books like the Bhagavad Gita from Higginbottoms in India. Uh, we didn't, I don't think we had a copy at home. Um, and, but I would hear my grandparents recite Tamil poetry, Alvar poetry, um, when my grandmother prayed. And she would recite reams of Sanskrit stotras from memory as she was cooking. And my grandfather had taught me lots of Sanskrit prayers from the time I was a kid. But that's what it was. It wasn't anything more. But I bought this book of the Bhagavad Gita and I was reading it and I knew I was very interested. I was interested in all kinds of things. Um, But then I thought, I'm interested in Freud. I'm interested in uh, psychoanalysis. So I thought, okay, psychology. Well, within a week, I knew I was in the wrong field um, and had chosen the completely wrong area to focus on. But in India, you couldn't change your major once you declared it. And so... There I was, and the philosophy courses I had then were all Western philosophy, Descartes to Kant, and so on. So uh, it's at the end of my first year of my BA that I was in my cousin's house, and I read a couple of books which opened my mind. Uh, One was Basham's Wonder That Was India, and the other was um, uh, Zimmer's Philosophies of India. And my mind was just opened up, and I said, whoa, this even stuff here that I love reading, but even then I didn't know it was an academic field. It was a couple of years later when I was doing my master's that I was in a library and a book literally fell off almost. I mean, I borrowed this book by in the British Council Library 
called Avatar and Incarnation. And it was by Jeffrey Parinder, a wonderful scholar from uh, England who died a few years ago. And then I knew this was an area and I had been, I took a MA, I did an MA in philosophy in Bombay, was near tears because I didn't understand a word of what they, what they said in Indian philosophy. But finally narrowed it down to Ramanuja and Shankara. And there was an aha moment. That's what I really want to do. And by the second year of my MA, I kind of knew what I wanted to do for my PhD. Um, and then by a series of um, serendipitous um, yeah, uh, moments and accidents, I got to meet uh, John Carmen from Harvard. And um, I came to Harvard as a, a resident graduate student unclassified. I think that's what they called it initially. But I came as a grad student there while I was doing my PhD in Bombay. And um, so eventually um, I was able, I had the privilege, the joy, the delight of staying in that area, that field and studying more and more. Um, and at the Center for the Study of Hindu, of, sorry, Center for the Study of World Religions, at Harvard, I was able to take a number of courses, uh, particularly I re really a uh, course that, I, that sticks in my mind is an introduction to New Testament because it was taught by a professor, um, George McRae, who was a Catholic priest, a Jesuit, and an editor of the Catholic Encyclopedia, and yet he didn't have a problem in really telling us what New Testament studies was all about, um, starting in the mid-19th century. And I learned a very important lesson then, and that is, you can, you know, the religion itself is greater than how you date a particular text, or whether X said Y, or Y said this, um, and you didn't have to have this as a historical truth that Jesus definitely said this in the Bible or Rama went to this place that there were many dimensions to this to a tradition and that one could appreciate it in so many different ways and not to feel insecure about dating passages texts and saying you know what this is not 10,000 years old but it doesn't matter um, and that was very, very important to me at that point. I find that, that uh, first of all, I can certainly relate to the serendipity that governs those pulled into Hindu studies. I discovered introduction to Hinduism the day that it started. Um, I'd, I had uh, started a literature degree, abandoned it for a variety of reasons. And I was thinking to go back and finish my degree in anything. And I discovered intro Hinduism the day it started. I think this must have been 2004 in the fall. And somehow it roped me in to finish that degree and then two more. And, and, and here I am. Actually, speaking of one of the two more, the first time we interacted, I had the delight when I was a lowly grad student at Calgary University, University of Calgary. You came to give a, a, a splendid talk and we went to Lake Louise together in the mountains. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Absolutely. Um, I realized that now that I'm a much senior scholar, that I can ask people when they invite me to give talks, if I could do this or that. In general, and as I've been working on 
I've been working quite for several years on Hinduism in America. And so I would ask people, what are the Hindu temples nearby? Can I go to this one or that one or this meditation center and check it out? And the best interactions I've had in, with any universities frequently with the grad students and chatting with them and talking to them um, and going with them to temples. Oh, I, I remember that in Texas too. Yeah. Or in um, Calgary, I said, may I come a couple of days earlier and just go, I'll take a tourist bus to see all these wonderful wonders. Um, and that was supposed to have been in fall 2012. Um, when I thought, oh, I, I'm going to catch the colors of Calgary there, like the multi-hued colors of Hinduism. Um, unfortunately, my mother was very ill. She died later. I was in India then. So I ended up coming to Calgary late March 1st. I think it was April 1, something like that. Not the best time to visit Lake Louis. But um, and there were not too many... Um, uh, tourist buses going out there then and your department was so kind and I think it was such a pleasure to go there you know I don't even remember the lake from that year I've, I've been there many times after that but I remember the conversations we had together and I still have those photographs absolutely um you you um I suspect there's no off switch for the ethnographer in you eh this is a way of life learning from people speaking to people uh, at every yeah. turn. Yeah, it's fascinating. And your name. I mean, what you had to say about your origins and where you came from and what do the, your name mean? I remember those conversations so well. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And then um, we interacted again more recently. It had been quite a number of years in between. I think I was finishing a degree and starting a bunch of projects. But recently we got to interact um, on some of your more recent work in Southeast Asia. There was a, there was a weekend school at the Oxford Center for the Hindu, uh, Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. Clearly I need more coffee today. There was a weekend school um, where you and uh, John Gee and Hilary Rodriguez presented some phenomenal research on Hinduism in Southeast Asia. And from what I understand, that's still a, a, a main preoccupation of you and your research. Is so why don't you share a bit about that for the audience? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so my publications, my ongoing publications and future ones are all in uh Cambodia, Khmer territories. Cambodia is a much smaller country today, and the Khmer territories really extended far beyond the national border, uh, borders of Cambodia and into parts of Thailand and um, Myanmar, Malaysia, parts of uh, the, um, Vietnam, a large area, Laos. So <clears throat> I was and am still writing a book on Hindu traditions in America, uh, temple space, domestic space, and public spaces, to some extent also cyberspace. And while I started that book, oh, about 25 years ago, I was to have finished it 20 years ago. But at that time, right around 1999, 2000, I uh, took... I was, I was writing a chapter on early Hindu uh, movements to different parts of the world. 
um, was going to finish that chapter with a flourish with Caribbean and so on. And I thought, okay, two paragraphs on Southeast Asia. And I borrowed a bunch of books from the library, started to read. And I was intellectually appalled with myself for having taught Hinduism for decades without taking into account any of the global manifestations. And I realized how limited I had been in my teaching of Hinduism. So it was an intellectual challenge um, and I had to learn more about it. Emotionally and aesthetically, I just fell in love with that with what I was seeing in the books. I saw some pictures of Angkor Wat and felt literally like I had fallen into that picture. And I couldn't finish that chapter, early chapter for my book on um, Hinduism in America. Uh, so I hope to finish it in the next year. But uh, that made me want to go to Southeast Asia because I, can't, I couldn't write about it without being there, seeing it, absorbing it, and reading more and more. Um, and after my visit in 2002, first Oman, yeah, I couldn't stop going back and sometimes I went twice a year, sometimes, and then I spent my sabbatical there. So I think one should keep in mind also that the Cambodian or Khmer area, Kambuja, the country as it was known during the Angkorian period between early ninth century up to say the 14th century, the Angkorian period, um, it was called Kambuja, the, offspring of Kambu. It had a very Sanskritized and a quote unquote Vaishnava Shaiva profile more than perhaps its immediate neighbors, but it didn't mean an intellectual, physical or cultural colonization. In fact, Angkor was powerful. It had its own rich history and it was right at the center of a global metropolis. Think of it as New York. At one point, its um, population was about a million, which is amazing in those days. And so it was able to pick and choose from all the kinds of religions and the cultures surrounding it. So whereas neighboring Champa was became more sinicized, uh, Cambodia had more Vaishnava and Shaiva kinds of um, issues that it, it followed up on and adopted and adapted. So my questions were, what's their age, how, how did their agency, the large metropolises um, communicated with those of um, uh, India. And starting about the fourth century CE, even though the trade had begun earlier, um, after the third or fourth century CE, it became more fashionable, more with it for countries in Southeast Asia to follow Indian trends. Why? Um, one theory has been, um, Monica Smith and others have said, is to do with the power of the Gupta empire. Others have, and I would say, well, certainly after this time, <clears throat> the Pallava uh, uh, connections are very, very strong. Uh, so Kanchi, Kalinga, to some, if you really want to put yourself on a limb, even Kashmir, there were many parts of India which interacted with parts of Cambodia. And of course, 
there was trade going much further west into Rome. <clears throat> so we think globalization happened yesterday. So I'd like to, I'm, what I've been working on for several years is the sense of Cambodia and the Khmer agency in picking and choosing and why they chose certain themes to highlight, to make conspicuous. And the one that I've been working on for about 20 years now, oh, at least 18 years, um, is the story of the churning of the ocean of milk. The multiple dimensions of it and the interpretation doesn't, just as one can't give a single line story for Hinduism, you can't do that for the, the story either. And that's the fun of stories, uh, the narratives. You have multiple interpretations uh, speaking to you at different times and different ages. So why is it that the largest bar relief in the world is this churning of the ocean of milk story, 49 meters wide on the eastern walls of Angkor Wat? Why is it that the longest Sanskrit inscription in the world was done in the Khmer territories without stock out Tom, which is now in um, the Bangkok National Museum Library, um, and on and on. Um, and Angkor Wat was a large Vaishnava, Vishnu temple when it was built. Three floors facing west, and the only other temple like that is in Kanchipuram, Vaikuntha Permal Temple. And yet it's, it's like Vaikuntha Permal Temple on, on steroids. It's huge. And the architecture is borrowed from Kalinga. So they kind of went shopping and picked and chose. And theologically, they had certain things they were bringing out with that. So that's part of my work. And to, to work on the many meanings of this story in text, in sculpture, in performing arts from about the ninth century to the 12th in Angkor, and also the context in India. And today, why is it so politically important? And when Cambodia built a memorial park in Siem Reap to honor those who died under the Pol Pot regime and the Vietnam War, they circled this particular park with devas and asuras from pulling Vasuki from the story. And that was 2003. So why is it that this story is so important even today to them when lost artifacts, uh, sorry, stolen artifacts and those that are in museums around the, the world are returned to Cambodia. It's usually in front of a mural of this particular story. That's been my research. It's, and I find that endlessly fascinating. We, you'll certainly have to come on the podcast to feature both of those books when they're at the one on this fascinating research on Hinduism in Southeast Asia and Hinduism in America. It's, it's fascinating the extent to which these captivating stories, they encode timeless truths and perhaps even archetypal aspects of self. And yet they're, they're, they're inexhaustibly amenable to culture and time and space. And so right? politically relevant. Yes. And that's the issue. I mean, the, the election symbol, a logo sometime back in Cambodia was this particular story. Um, and uh, outside the Cambodian embassy in Washington, D.C., that's the story you find as a, as a, as a, as a sculpture. Um, I mean, by way of comparison, 
There's Gandhi outside the Indian embassy and outside the British embassy, you find Winston Churchill. But outside Indonesia, you find Saraswati, which is again, a political statement. And here outside the Cambodian embassy, you find the churning of the ocean of milk. And then um, around 2006, seven, six, um, when the new airport in Bangkok was opened, Suvarnabhumi, uh, International Airport, right in the middle of that airport, the departure lounge, is a huge diorama, really big, of this churning of the ocean of milk. And there are many YouTube videos on how this was created. And it's, you know, it's very politically relevant. It coincides with um, uh, the birthday of the king, the anniversary of his, uh, the diamond jubilee of his ascending to the throne, all kinds of uh, political issues about ascension, coronation, kingship, and here is the story. And so they presented this on YouTube and you should see it sometime. But more interesting, see the comments on the, under that, that's still, they're still there. And the, some of the comments from the Cambodian people are very strong. <laughs> they say they stole our story. And they're seen as a Cambodian story and it's all on the walls of Angkor Wat. It's our story. Don't... So you can ask of the thousands of stories available, why is it that this story has been valorized in Southeast Asia, particularly Cambodia, but now also in. So what are the political issues at the back of this? That's fascinating. So fascinating. Um, at the outset of our conversation, you mentioned this sort of bifurcation and perhaps polarization of um, Hinduism and the study of Hinduism and the ways in which various publics uh, conceive of Hinduism. Would you say a bit more about that? Um, you said, would you say in this country, um, for those of you are aware uh, of us who's situated in the United States, um, could you say a little bit more about that polarity that you, you've come across? Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, that anyone in the study of South Asian studies, Hindu studies, in the last decade will notice a politicization of what we've been teaching. Um, and that's in itself interesting. I mean, when I went into this topic, most people thought this would be, you know, in terms of popular interest, um, the lowest form of life, uh, you know, uh, who would be interested in this? Um, and certainly it's not controversial. I mean, yes, the controversies are all the debates within the Vedanta and so on, but what's going on now? Um, but in the last 20 years, uh, one could say 30, 30 uh, there's been a growing awareness of what, how Hinduism is being taught in outside of India and how it's not taught within India, uh, how it's not taught period uh, for according to some people. So there are many issues connected with this. One of them in, in India, and that goes back again to something I spoke about earlier, but how I found Hindu studies, there is no study of real or was no study academic study of religion. Um, and one had to kind of mess around to find a topic like philosophy, which, or 
in Bombay, you had, uh, which is still called the University of Bombay then, um, you had to find ancient Indian culture. Eventually in Madras University, they introduced topics or, or departments like Vaishnavism or Shaivism or Islam. And there be, there's the whole history here about commissions which have advocated the study of religion and the rejection of it because it was <clears throat> taught to, um, it, it, it might in, it might lead to communal unrest, rather than thinking that this in fact would increase knowledge. <clears throat> but the model was set after the University of, uh, of London University where for local reasons in the 19th century, there was no study of religion. So there's a colonial history to this too. So because of that, we have not had an academic study of religion in India. And I think that would have helped a lot of Hinduism. And I think that's too bad because in the push towards encouraging STEM disciplines and of course the need of the hour in the 1960s was seen to be engineering and pouring all of uh, Indian resources into those fields, the humanities and the study of religion was, was neglected. Um, and in fact, many of us uh, who grew up still had a kind of a colonial legacy of having choices like French for a second language and very few places at that point offered Sanskrit or other languages. Today, in some places, there's a complete politicization and having everything done in a local language such that the knowledge of English has been greatly limited in, in India. Now, in America, um, the situation has been that both in Canada and in, in America, we've had uh, a large Indian diaspora and in, uh, Americans of Indian or South Asian origins settling down here. And here, the study of Islam and Hinduism have all have, have become bifurcated in different departments, dif different places sometimes. <clears throat> and there has been a perception by the Indian diaspora that there's a lot of soft peddling in the teaching of Islam um, in high school textbooks, school textbooks. But with Hinduism, everything is thrown out there. There are many perceptions about how Hinduism is taught, is taught here in the universities. Some, I think they're, they're they have a rightful concern and in some, no. Uh, a lot of it has been exaggerated. Um, a lot of this has been taken out of context also. But connected with this is also the rise of a government in India, which is seen as being, um, as promoting communalism in a certain way or in many ways. And so there's been much tension even among scholars about how to deal with these topics. Um, and when you take, it, take into consideration how much of misinformation is out on many levels about what we're teaching and what is going on in India, uh, the history of particular hot potato items from India. Um, we have had 
I think, unfortunately, a great deal of polarity. For instance, I think we think, I, I, it's kind of believed here, many people are either Hindutva or not, I mean, or secular. There's so much of nuancing one can do in between. Um, if one talks about the uniform civil code, you're put in a particular category. Um, if you talk about um, the government takeover of many Hindu temples, again, that is seen as, oh, is that Hindutva? So there are issues that Hindus want to raise in India and have a discussion about, have a debate about, but the politics in India, the vote banks have made it very difficult to have those kinds of conversations. And given the misinformation, it's a very, very difficult time uh, and space that we find ourselves, not just in India, but in academic studies here in this country. That's fascinating. Thank you for the, the candid um, share and respectful share of, of your perspective and the perspective of, of many. Um, what I find so interesting is um, the need for conversation. And yeah. on the podcast, you know, um, I have I have folks from different academic factions. I've had I've, I've had everyone from Bibek Dibor to Wendy Donner on the podcast. So it's 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 you know it's it's all over the gamut. So I think the, the key is to hear people's perspectives and 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 and, spe- and speak with these people who are interested in conversation and the folks who are interested in conversation. There's not a whole lot we can do with that. It seems. Yeah. Well. And, and call out misinformation. Um, I mean, for instance, there, there are so many uh, perspectives on Kashmir. How can we have a, uh, a history of it and not simply rely on a WhatsApp message or even the New York Times? Because every one of them has a particular angle, a particular axe to grind. So where are the different ways in which you can understand, say, the plight of um, Kashmiri pundits, the plight of Muslim women today? There there are so many ways in which we can try to increase our understanding, sift through the materials, and be sensitive to those voices. Uh, And I think that's that respect has gone in the kind of shrieking that you find, whether it's a news channel or um, by some parts of the debate that's going on in this country. I mean, and let's face it, there's also um, a great deal to be gained by calling for saying, labeling things as Hinduphobia by some quarters. So there's that. And on the other hand, um, there's cultural currency um, in condemning things that some Hindus have done. So I mean, there's on both it's, sides you find it. Yeah, exactly. There are various perspectives on all sides of the spectrum. Um, and for me, one of the one of the guiding principles for me in in the podcast and my life in general is. Um, speaking to people who are interested in being spoken to and being heard 
and that can be challenging at times. And uh, whichever whichever side of the political or religious or academic spectrum someone is, um, it seems to me that some are intent on some yoga and some are intent on V yoga. You know, and it's like okay. Whatever your beliefs are, or whatever your perspective is, are you what's what's driving you, right? Are we trying to bring people together, or are we trying to tear asunder? And so well, that's sort of how I look at it. Well, you know, <laughs> um, I have to remind you that my work has been in uh, the larger school of Advaita, <laughs> so there is a space in between the Advaita and the Dvaita part of it, I would say, right? Of course, uh, of course. And and what you say is is very um, pervasive and uh, it affects so much of what we do. Actually, I'll have um, uh, Neha Segal. She's an um, associate director of research at Pew. She'll Pew. be on the podcast mm-hmm. yeah. to talk about uh, this groundbreaking uh, survey. But, but, but a sort of closer to home uh, <laughs> anecdote. Earlier this week, I was uh, presenting... So I was contracted by the International Committee for the Red Cross to investigate um, Hindu perspectives on armed conflict, sort of just war, rules of engagement in Hindu texts, primarily the Mahabharata, which is the, the, the place for, that's, that's richest. But uh, on the call, there were other researchers part of the group, and there was this fascinating conversation on behalf of one of the research who one of the researchers whose job it was to understand and present the perspective, the Hindutva perspective on armed conflict, irrespective of whether or not they are grounded in Shastra or with Shastras. And it was just a fascinating exchange to watch um, uh, the conversation ensue in such a way that um, you know, many, many in the Zoom room were squirming, many realized it has to be talked about. And, and th- this kind of, um, how, how do we, it, how do we allow for all perspectives and how do we vet who speaks for Hinduism? So there are these huge issues that, you know, I'm just the guy who does, you know, the ancient classical Hindu stuff. And I thought that was safe, but no, that's no. not safe. <laughs> you are not on any <laughs> I mean, I was doing Sri Vaishnava literature and then churning of the ocean of milk and look where it is. But that's, that's the fun part of Hinduism, the study of Hinduism. That's a delightful part. Um, for instance, yes, last two years have been two years from hell in terms of the pandemic. The tragedy of the loss of lives, the tragedy of the loss of livelihoods um, has been immense and and just beyond thinking. And yet it, it amuses me when I go through WhatsApp messages um, and I belong to about half a dozen different groups, family, um, high school classmates, school, uh, college friends, the different reactions of forwarded messages to the pandemic. And what has been amusing, or not amusing, striking to me is the sense of humor that the Hindus have had. At the face of the pandemic, when things are raging, and yet to call it this kind of bringing the deities in in a, in a very nice way and using them to spread information, using performing arts 
dances to talk about the right messages uh, about washing hands, about uh, wearing of a mask and things like that. And I must have seen performing arts from different, I mean, different kinds of dances explore, exploring that and explaining that um, and using of cartoons from Rama to Durga to talk about first responders, to talk about the Lakshman Rekha, uh, symbolizing the lockdowns we've had. Uh, and, you know, it's a kind of a restoration of normalcy where for many Hindus, there's a sense of sense of humor. And what I regret most in the kind of polarity that we find ourselves in is this loss of humor. But things have become tragic in some ways, where it's become hazardous to your health in multiple ways to say or think certain things. But that sense of humor, the way the hospitality that humor provided has been lost completely. Well, I'm glad that you and I can smile and laugh on the podcast at the very least. Um, we're pretty much close to time for today. I know you're, you're a very busy woman. Um, what comes to mind is, you know, I would love to pick your brain further at some point, perhaps when your books are published or, or before then, but you've just seen so much in terms of scholarship, in terms of institutional change, in terms of, of everything. And um, without putting, in, putting you on the spot too much, are there particular standout trends in your mind in terms of how we study Hinduism that come, well, come to mind? I, you know, that that question has to be allied with something else too, and how Hinduism has been changing constantly. Yes, we like to think about the Sanatana and, you know, it's always existing, but it's existing because it's transforming, it's changing, it's adapting, um, and, and, you know, learning in many ways. We learn from it in many ways too. So, for instance, let me tell you, I mean, when I was growing up, I, I didn't know anyone doing yoga. I mean, yes, I had an aunt who, whose husband's aunt knew some asanas. So that was a big deal for us. But by the time I came to this country, this was a big deal. And it was becoming a big deal. And now, I mean around every corner in India, you find yoga studios. And then that has to be connected with yoga studies in this country. And, and then that has to be studied with the political questions that go with it as yoga Hindu. So there's a kind of a spectrum here from things changing within or not changing in Hinduism. Yoga is about is, as different kinds of yoga. The texts are very old. The, the, the format of presentation and, and, and how it's grown is a fascinating story in itself. Um, but that goes, that's connected with, uh, with, with the studies of it too. Uh, yesterday, uh, people kept talking about every temple around the country in America was sending me flyers and WhatsApp and um, Facebook messages on today is Gita Jayanti. And Hello. Yes. I mean, but the first time I had encountered Gita Jayanti, and I mean, I may, I may be singularly ignorant on this, was about 25 years ago when I went to Atlanta Temple and people were sitting around in the kind of a makeshift picture of the Gita Padesha and saying, oh, today's Gita Jayanti. And I said, what's that? 
I know Agita and Vajayanti, but I don't know Agita Jayanti. And uh, but and uh, they they said that, and I said, did you practice this when you were growing up? And they said no, but this Swamiji told us, and you know, so it's become now a, a kind of a standard to practice to to have that. So <clears throat> I I think there's been a growing trend in many festivals, in many practices, and also a growing consciousness among Hindus about their own history and their own rituals. Thanks to YouTube, thanks to WhatsApp. I mean, they have a social media of different kinds. They know more about Vaikuntha Ekadashi. They know more about temple rituals and so on. And I think those studies that are going on in this country have, um, helped a lot in understanding of Hinduism. Plus, from moving from textual studies in religion, ethnography and um, anthropology, you have moved towards the connection between the two in the last 50 years. Um, and many fine scholars of the earlier, you know, who, who really pushed this starting 40, 50 years ago, um, and they're still part of research. And I think we owe a lot to them um, to, to acknowledge their work um, and to kind of make those texts live through rituals too. So it, yes, it's very important to have a textual study, but also to have it connected with lived religion is very important, especially uh, when globalization means that you don't have to go to India to know India. I mean, that's your cardiologist or that's your professor. Fascinating. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. I had a great time speaking with you. Thank you. And may you live a hundred autumns and enjoy a hundred autumns. Thank you so much. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Vasudhara Narayanan, who is Distinguished Professor in the Department of Religion at the University of Florida. She's also Director for the Center for the Study of Hinduism. Hindu um, traditions. Hindu traditions. I'll put the link in the podcast notes <laughs> so you can see it yourself. Until next time, uh, keep listening, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the diversity that is uh, Indian religions. Take care.